Welcome to the COO Roundtable, powered by PFI Advisors. Here's your host, Matt Sonnen. Welcome back, everyone, to the COO Roundtable. As Luke said, I am your host, Matt Sonnen, and we have a little bit different episode today. For the first time in our podcast series, we have a CEO of a firm joining us to provide his take on the importance of the COO role within his organization and how professional management has alleviated many of his day-to-day responsibilities. Uh, We also have two professionals who report to him and split the traditional COO duties. So I think we're going to name this one the Stratos Wealth Partners edition of the COO Roundtable. Uh, We have uh, founder and CEO Jeff Concepcion. Uh, We also have the uh, COO and CFO Nancy Andrefsky. And Lou Camacho is also joining us. He is the president of Stratos Wealth Alliance. Um, the Stratos story is a bit more complicated than the average RIA. There is a side of the business focused on end clients and another side of the business focused on attracting advisors to the organization. And I'm going to hand it over to Jeff here in just a second to give us a brief overview of the firm. But uh, first, I just wanted to rattle off some of the stats that are on your website. They, they are incredibly impressive. Uh, 87 offices around the country in 24 states, 287 advisors servicing over 13,000 clients. I'm guessing 13,000 clients probably equates to about 75,000 account numbers is my guess. Um, There are 60 staff members at the home office in Beechwood, Ohio, and I believe the firm turned 10 years old this year. So Jeff, uh, can you tell us how you found yourself today running such a large enterprise. This is this is incredible, the story here. Yeah, thank you, Matt, and thanks for the opportunity to uh, let us join you and chat a little bit about our model. Uh, so, yeah, it was 2009, uh, you're correct, was our launch, so we just had our 10th anniversary a couple months ago, uh, and I'm glad that our stats are outdated. That means we're making progress every month <laughs> as we plan to because I believe the number of offices, advisors, and assets are more than what they were a few months back. I think uh, the total of brokerage and advisory assets uh, under advisement is something uh, north of 13 billion today. Um, and you know the, the way that we launched the firm was kind of acknowledging what uh, we felt was a gap between the full service world uh, where advisors gave up on average two thirds of their revenue uh, for a brand and support and kind of a turnkey experience versus the opposite end of the spectrum where advisors got the lion's share of the revenue, but also uh, the obligation or burden of wearing you know, a couple dozen hats that really detracted from that advisor-client experience and thinking that we might be able to find a solve uh, that would be more effective for them than them trying to sort of operate on an island, the whole notion of supported or collaborative independence versus pure independence. Fantastic. And then... Um... Nancy and Lou, uh, I always love hearing people's backstories. Um, I always joke um, on every one of these episodes, no one grows up thinking they're going to be the chief operating officer of a registered investment advisor. So uh, Nancy, I'm going to throw it to you first. Can you tell us uh, what you were doing before joining Stratos? How did you wind up here today? Yeah, I think maybe I'm unusual. Um, I actually, from the age of eight, knew that I wanted to be a COO of of an RIA. Uh, <laughs> actually, I had no idea what a COO was, um, you know, probably till many years after graduating college. Uh, I did start out in the C 
CPA world uh, with Ernst & Young and moved on to be a controller at other organizations after that. So uh, my background up until joining Stratus really was always um, completely in the in, in the finance world as a controller, accountant, and you know a little bit other things, but always related to the finance department of, a, of an organization. So um, as my, when my kids were younger, I'd taken a step back and decided to uh, spend some time with them and then also work at some nonprofits as treasurers, controllers, and whatnot. So it was a, it was a big departure from what I had done up until that point. And when I was ready to get back in, Jeff, uh, Jeff's family and my family had been longtime friends, and he had said to me, hey, you know, why don't you come and, and work with me? Um, at that time, he was with a very large uh, national financial services firm. And, you know, I just thought at this point, I've, I've gotten away from that and I really don't want to get back into it. And not long after that is when he started Stratus and he approached me about being the CFO. And I had told Jeff for years, I said, you know, you are just such an entrepreneur. What are you doing in this suit job? Hmm. So he finally had the opportunity, I guess, to, to take that entrepreneurial spirit and parlay it into his own business. Uh, that was in an industry he had been in his whole career. So I thought this was something that I really wanted to be a part of and was pretty excited and was confident that he would be successful. So I joined him in that role. And as a startup company, I mean, we came in here with zero advisors, uh, you know, zero anything. And it was a big learning experience, I think, for all of us. I wore many hats being here from the beginning. I was drawn into a whole lot of things uh, outside of the finance department. I think Jeff still thinks that I'm an attorney. Um, I was the in-house counsel, uh, sole in-house counsel for a long time until our chief compliance officer joined, and and we now are both internal uh, lawyers. But uh, we've, we've grown up to the point where we actually have outside counsel as well. But anyway, just drawn into a whole lot of uh, other things, and he approached me I guess a few years in, uh, asking for me to take on more of a COO role in addition to my finance duties. And just, I think, by the nature of me having been involved in a lot of different things and understanding uh, how things had been built up to that point. But uh, my children were still young, and I was not ready to commit to what I knew would be a um, really big role and big learning experience for me, because it's not something that uh, I had been involved in up until that point. So, um, you know, fast forward a, a few more years and 2015, we had a lean evaluation of our firm. It was the second year in a row that we had um, outside uh, consultants come in and do the evaluation. I was working very closely with the person coordinating that, and I knew there was going to be a lot of initiatives uh, coming out of that evaluation. And we just really didn't have a, a core person to execute on them. So we talked a lot about it, and then when we were doing the, the debrief on the evaluation, I offered to be the interim COO at that point, and just so that we could get things off the ground. I didn't want to lose the momentum, and we, we really needed to put some structure um, in, in the company. Uh, we had operated as a pretty flat organization up until that point, and it worked for us. Um, it was pretty loose, and, and you know you worked across departments, but we realized communication was lacking. At that point, we really needed to establish some structure and that was going to be a, a, a big takeaway from that. And, and the question was, well, who, who's going to do that? Jeff's out, you know, growing the company yeah. by leaps and bounds and, and we really needed to do that. So I, I offered to step in as an interim. <laughs> we talked about it and uh, that's where it started. And then somehow along the way, unbeknownst to me, I became the permanent COO and here I am. <laughs> but it's been a great ride. It's been really enjoyable, but yeah, certainly not 
something I aspired to do. I enjoy it now and adding Lou to the mix. There's, there's things that um, he brings to the table, having been in the custodial world that I just don't have the experience, nor did really anyone here have the, the breadth of experience that he has had. And we're at the, the point now where to get to the next 13, 14 billion, um, we need a higher level of expertise, I believe. And we keep trying to add uh, the necessary human capital and investments in the company so that we can stay ahead of that. But uh, so that's how I got here. And it's, it's been a big learning curve, but uh, certainly a fun ride. That is the most common. I mean, I, I always I ask it on every episode. Hey, I want to hear your backstory. Tell me your backstory. And it's the one common thread is, well, my first job, the formal description really was just, can you do the stuff around here that needs to get done? So yes, I, I, I can totally relate. I love it. Um, so Lou, compared to Nancy, you've been, you're, you're brand new to Stratos compared to, and Nancy's been there since, since the beginning. So tell us um, uh, how and when you, you arrived at Stratos and, and a little bit of your backstory. Yeah, yeah. No, Matt. And again, thanks for giving us the opportunity to uh, to join the podcast. So, yeah, I am a, a, a relative newbie here at Stratos, <laughs> certainly on sitting on an executive uh, uh, committee that is made up of folks that, you know, have for the most part been here since day one. So I am I'm rounding out one year uh, at the firm. Um Previously, I spent the vast majority of my career with the uh, the two major custodians, Schwab and Fidelity. And it's funny, I I often joke that you know, Stratos is the oldest new job uh, that I've ever had. Uh, I spent, gosh, yeah, almost four years kind of in a consulting capacity as a senior relationship manager uh, uh, at Fidelity, covering covering the Stratos relationship. And, you know, it's interesting, similar, you know, I think to, to Nancy in that you kind of have this, this dialogue and why you join an organization. And one of the things I think that, you know, makes us, you know, unique is that they're really, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit really is weaved into the organization. And um, I think working with the firm, getting to know the people, um, the infrastructure, the processes kind of right where the, where the skeletons are hidden, if you will, if you will, the firm was incredibly attractive to me at a stage in my career where um, I had, you know, I'd learned a great deal from my time at the custodians, right? You get the opportunity to work with really successful RIAs, gain insight and perspective to the challenges that they're facing with, you know, whether it be growth, technology, operations, service support, you name it, right? The, okay. the day-to-day, you know, that background and experience has been invaluable as, you know, I've kind of, you know, gotten my footing underneath me here at Stratos. Um, so, yeah, I was just at a stage in my career where I was, you know, certainly looking to do something more entrepreneurial, um, having the opportunity to build something and kind of leverage, right, the past 15 years of experience that I've had in the RIA space in a much more impactful way. Um, and just conversations with Jeff, Nancy, and others in the firm, they, they really grew organically. I don't think that, um, either one of us really had my role in mind. And I'm not sure that I completely understood what the role would be on day one, but I think we both felt pretty good that um, I could have an impact in some way or, f- uh, some way or firm. And I think um, just in that alone, I think is very telling about the culture here. Um, Stratos was comfortable not necessarily having a role completely baked out for me. And I was comfortable with that as well. And I think in retrospect, um, it's been a really, really good situation for us because I've, you know, I've been able to contribute really anywhere um, where we had gaps that 
you know, I felt my background and experience would be able to add value in. And Jeff and Nancy and the team, um, you know, they've been really incredible in giving me the autonomy to, you know, dig into any areas where I could have an impact. So um, it's been great. Were you, it seems to be a common career path into the COO role is, is um, were you the uh, custodial rep uh, covering Stratos and then flip sides? Exactly right. Yep. That's exactly right. I covered them for about three and a half years. Yep. Yep. That that is definitely a common career path. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, well, I was, another yeah. benefit in that something. I, I was just going to joke that I'm fairly certain that Fidelity wrote Jeff a check just to, to you know have him take me off their hands. So that worked out for <laughs> Jeff as well. <laughs> and now we're trying to write them a check to get him back there. <laughs> oh my gosh. The good news I'm is Jeff also wrote a check for twice as much just to get me out of here. <laughs> <laughs> totally kidding. We're so thrilled to have Lou here. <laughs> so moving on. <laughs> um, so I wanted to go a little bit deeper. So that's your backstory. So now um, in our work and PFI's work with COOs, we've we've sort of defined three high level uh, functions of a, of a COO. So one is just the day-to-day administration of the firm. Um, the owner uh, by definition, the owner should be out of the office 90% of the time meeting with prospects and clients. So it's the COO that's the person that's in the office on a regular basis executing that owner's vision uh, through people and technology. And because they are the one in the office, they are the one most responsible for the firm's culture, in my opinion, um, because it's the employees that are interacting with this person on a regular basis and looking to them for, for guidance. So that's sort of number one. Two is driving workflow improvements, and this is the most common area that people think of when they hear chief operating officer. This is overseeing the technology stack, uh, managing the various vendor relationships, et cetera. And then three, and in my mind the most important, is the human resources function. So we believe it's the COO most of the time at an RIA who's responsible for recruiting and hiring, uh, training and retaining the employees as the firm grows and continues to try to uh, to provide that high-touch service to more and more clients as they grow and, and, and need scale. So it was a long-winded intro to this question, but uh, Lou, um, how does Stratos divide these three functions among, uh, among the C-suite, and what high-level tasks are you covering on a, on a day-to-day basis for the firm? Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's funny. It, it's a great question, and I think the way that we've approached it, and I alluded to it earlier, is really just taking a look at where could each of us have an impact. So, you know, broadly, right, when we think about operations, so right now I oversee the firm's advisory operations and technology along with the firm's M&A strategy. But part of that strategy, right, is the operational infrastructure, the technology stack, and what we ultimately deliver to advisors. So early in my career, and right, you never know kind of where your past experience is going to come into play. But when I first started at Schwab, uh, right, I was on a service team. I was, you know, answering phone calls from advisors very, very early in the game. Um, that kind of evolved into, uh, you know, conversion services, bringing on new business and ultimately uh, ever evolving relationship management and sales roles within the organization. So early on in my tenure with Stratos, 
um, we were kind of thinking through operationally, you know, one, how do we better support the advisors that are already on the platform, right? The blocking and tackling the day-to-day and protecting the core, which is incredibly important, but also how do we build a valuable uh, operational support model for the firms that affiliate with us through partnership or that we acquire, right? We wanted to make sure that we executed really well on that. And um, my past experience, right, with the major custodians came into play there. And it's funny, we were actually uh, thinking about uh, a new hire to fill that role. And uh, Nancy and I were sitting down one afternoon and I kind of said, hey, look, I think I could add some value here. And um, I kind of took it on from there. Um, And technology was the same. Um, Stratos is interesting in that, right? A lot of folks are challenged operationally to go out and kind of, you know, do their due diligence and acquire various software components and try to figure it out. Well, we have best of breed technology on the platform today. Um, Our challenge is really, you know, how do we bring those things together, right? And deliver solutions to our advisors that are going to continue to uh, uh, add value and help them grow, compete and succeed in the marketplace, right? How do we put these things together in a way that will differentiate us from our competitors, Um, You know, as far as, you know, Nancy goes, right, you think about kind of the CFO, HR, marketing, she also oversees our business services group, and that's essentially our practice management arm. Um, And that's right, all those things are more to her skill set. You know, Nancy is probably the best I have ever seen with the numbers, and we trust her implicitly, right, when we're sitting down and negotiating transactions and making sure that the economics work, there's no one better than Nancy to oversee those things, right, but yet she's diverse enough, right, a lot of times when you have the number crunchers, they don't necessarily have the skill set to get involved in other aspects of the operations, but, you know, Nancy does, she does an excellent job on the HR, the marketing, and the business services side of things. So I think at this stage of the firm's evolution, we're still in a place where, right, we all have to wear multiple hats. And I think, you know, we're honest with each other. We sit down around the table and we simply decide, hey, look, you know, who's best equipped to execute on this and who can take this to furthest? And we do that until we get to a point where we feel, you know, we may need to bring in outside talent to take it to the next level or, you know, someone takes on or gives up additional responsibilities. Perfect. So Nancy, he stole some of your thunder, but I, I wanted to hear from you directly. What what part of the uh, the COO functions are, are you handling on a day-to-day basis? You know, I think that, that Lou covered it well, but yep. um, the CFO responsibilities, I have a really strong uh, controller under me, Karen Miltner, um, that makes my job so much easier to, to handle. And then um, I'm also responsible for HR and business services, which is run by Jen Isaacs and also um, just does a great job of uh, it's, it's we try and make that seamless so that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it used to be we, we really built out our transitions department um, because advisors, when they joined us, that was really important to them that um, we, that they knew that their transitioning was going to go, you know, be in good hands. And then um, we built out a relationship management department for once they're here, how do we help them with pa- practice management and, and basically how to be a new business owner. Some of these advisors, when they join us, they've never run a business before. They really don't even know how do you set up an LLC? Um, how do you develop the right team? So um, that was that was kind of set up separately. And then, um, you know, in, in talking about it, we're like, this should be more seamless once they're coming in with us and they're transitioning. Let's not hand them off to somebody else. You know, they get comfortable and they're happy with how that's going. So we, we merged those departments 
And so it's, it's now um, integrated the transition into the relationship management. And that's what's under business services, which, which rolls up to me as well as the HR. And that um, I think we found over time that HR is just crucial. Um, and, and I always thought of HR as, okay, you hire people and you deal with personnel problems, but, you know, hiring the right people um, is I think one of the most important things you can do as a firm, because the worst thing you can do is get a mediocre person in. you get the superstar in. That's great. You're going to set up a career path and whatnot. You get somebody who's really bad. Hopefully you don't, but you know, that identifies itself pretty quickly. And hopefully you, you know, slow to hire, quick to fire. You, yep. you can move that person out. The worst person you could get is somebody who's in the middle where they're never going to be your superstar, but you know, they're, they're doing their job. Okay. So you want to identify who are those great people before you bring them in the firm. And we have seen now, I mean, I think for me, one of the biggest learning curves for me has been to see how crucial that role is. So um, that's, that's, you know, really exciting to me because I think that we've, you know, improved upon that dramatically. And then also marketing. Um, they, they laugh because you have a bean counter who's now responsible for <laughs> the director of marketing. Uh, Kevin Elvington rolls up to me. And, and that was something that we grew our firm um, if you look at our, you know, how rapidly we grew despite doing absolutely no marketing and no PR. I mean, none until we didn't even have Kev, a, a marketing person until almost a year and a half ago. Um, you know, somebody on our advisory board said, you know, Stratus is the fastest growing largest company that nobody's ever heard of. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're trying to change that now because we realized, all right, we're at a stage that maybe we're a little bit more grown up and we should focus on that. So we brought Kevin in and uh, so now we're we're trying to come up with more of a strategic plan with that. At first, we had to have him work on all the things that we just couldn't pay attention to because we were just chasing our tail, trying to keep up with the growth. And so we we did start with uh, you know having him help with uh, our website and and marketing collateral and content marketing and and the things that we just hadn't done at all. Um, and you know, now we have to go to the next level and start having a, you know, PR focus and, and all of that. Uh, and then also um, from a firm security, uh, Jacob Stewart runs our technology department and he rolls up to me as well. And that's um, to keep, you know, the, the, especially in our industry with all of the hacking and the phishing and, and, you know, we've been fortunate enough that we've been able to expand that team and, and we have a, a full-time person who just does security. And, um, you know, so all of that stuff, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy because I'm drawn into all these different directions, but it's, it's also really exciting to me because I think I would get bored just doing one thing. And I never realized how exciting that would be until I got into this role. Yep. So I actually am grateful. Thank, thank Jeff constantly for giving me the opportunity because I don't even think that I would have known um, how much I would have enjoyed doing these different areas had I not been given the opportunity. Fantastic. Uh, so Jeff, I'm, I'm uh, not to put too much pressure on you, but the, your answer to this next question will be the highlight of this episode. <laughs> so, so, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm ready for you, buddy. <laughs> so, uh, I've, I've said it many times. The, the goal for me behind this podcast has been to try to change the view within the RA community of the COO role. I think that, um, most business owners, um, inside and outside the RA industry say, well, that COO, that is an expense line on the P&L. That isn't revenue generating. That isn't helping us grow the firm. That is just a cost that I have to incur as the owner. But I, So that's why I'm so excited to have you here from your viewpoint. Can you talk to us how having the combination of Nancy and Lou um, has alleviated you of many of the day-to-day 
tasks of running the business and allowed you to focus on what you do best. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, uh, that's teed up well. And I'm going to politely challenge you, Matt, on semantics about most business owners, because I'm going to argue with you that 75% of the people in our industry are not business owners. They're mm. self-employed. And they may think of themselves as business owners, but they're really self-employed, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of that mental paradigm shift that you're talking about. The difference between someone who's self-employed and someone who, in fact, is a business owner is they think about reinvestment and they think about growth and they think about infrastructure and they think about the redeployment of capital to create the ability for them to actually grow and build a business, which the self-employed advisor, that you know, well-known uh, term the lifestyle practice, they don't think that way. They see clients, they generate revenue, and they, they end up with a paycheck at the end of the day. So I think even just beginning mentally to accept the notion that I'm running a business, if I was running any business, I'd have a salary, I'd have some retained earnings, I'd have a business plan, I'd think about what that next strategic hire is, be it a COO or someone to drive acquisitions or technology or HR. And granted, in our world, I don't want to make a direct comparison to a private practice. I still have one today, but it's very different, right? We're running an enterprise. But even as someone who's running a private practice who has that business owner mentality, um, I, I did a little program with Mark Tabergen and Pershing a year ago, and it was that notion of evolution from an advisor to CEO. And I think it's exactly what you're touching on. Yeah. At many, many levels, advisors hit feelings of complexity. So you can only do so much on your own. And then you make that first huge leap of faith and you hire what? A sales assistant, some type of administrative support, right? And then, and then you take the practice to the next level. And then whatever that level happens to be for you, you hit another ceiling of complexity that the two of you can only do so much. And then you make that next hire. It could be a director of operations. It could be a head of planning. It could, you know, so as that business grows and as you hit various ceilings, there are certain, not necessarily sequential, but logical positions that you might add to your team, one of which could be someone to run operations. It could be financial planning. It could be asset management. And you know the, the sort of evolution of that talk with uh, this uh, panel that I sat on with Mark that ended up going to multiple cities is you need to fire yourself from responsibilities that someone else can do at least as well, and in many cases, better than you can do because it's what they're wired to do and go from 25 hats down to one or two, or maybe it tops three. Uh, and it's when you find out what those three hats are that you're just so naturally and uniquely skilled to wear that you really reach your full potential. Clearly, operations, you know, what Nancy does is one. Uh, in our case, you know, it's acquisitions with Lou and even some of the more strategic value he's brought to our tech platform. Uh, if you're running a, a private practice, it might be business development. Uh, that you'd hire someone to handle. It could be relationship management, client reviews, financial planning. Um, so I, I, not every practice looks the same, but to your point, and I think you're spot on, to move from self-employed to a business owner, you got to challenge yourself. You have to make decisions that may pull your income back a little bit in order to create capacity to grow a bigger, more valuable business that ultimately creates you know, more income. And it's only through reinvestment that you can do that. You did not let me down. Thank you. <laughs> that was perfect. Thanks. Yeah, um, a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. Yeah, I a lot put of a little pressure bit of pressure with that beat up of you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I remember. You got to remember. Three years ago, I was still back in Cuba rolling cigars. So, with English as a second language, with English as a second language for me, when you 
posit the question with such emphasis. You're, you're putting a lot of stress on yeah. a little guy like me. <laughs> That's right. I knew it was only a matter of time before the rail came off this thing. Yes. I'm telling you, buddy, we're heading there. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we have made the argument that one of the biggest benefits of having a COO or just professional management in general, whatever title you want to you wanna put on it, but I always gravitate towards the COO title, but one of the biggest benefits is having someone in the C-suite that's focused on bottom line profitability as opposed to just top line revenue. Many advisors, I see this all the time, many advisors get very excited over a $150 million cash management account. Um, holy cow, that's a lot of assets and everybody gets very excited. It's paying two basis points to the firm and you need the COO or professional management, again, whatever title you wanna give it, but you need somebody within the organization that's going to do the analysis and figure out, oh my goodness, this relationship is actually costing us four basis points in the customized reporting that it requires, in the uh, human capital cost to service this relationship. So I wanted to throw this one to Nancy because Nancy, obviously you have a, a unique take here because you have the CFO hat in addition to the COO hat, but can you talk a little bit about this profit versus growth dilemma that, that firms face? Oh, absolutely. Um, as a matter of fact, you have an hour because this is something I could talk about all day long. Um, and it's something that I have preached, uh, I think, since probably day one, um, that growth for growth sakes, uh, sake without dropping to the bottom line, it just creates needless complexity and keeps you running on a hamster wheel. So I think when um, when you're new and you're young, you kind of will chase any revenue because you're just you're trying to grow. Um, and, and that's understandable, you know, you'll make exceptions and, and you'll maybe go down paths you didn't think, um, and, and, and stick to your core. But I'm just saying that in the very beginning, we, we didn't have really good metrics and insight into what was profitable. Um, and I think it's crucial, uh, absolutely crucial to have a good understanding of the profitable business versus business that's neutral or negative to the bottom line. And, and I think you gave a great example in that if you don't have good insight into that, um, you could be taking on business that in the end cost you money, um, you know, and, and something that uh, people don't, we've, we've struggled with and tried to come up with uh, the best way possible of analyzing indirect costs because indirect costs have, can have just as much, if not more, of an impact to your bottom line if you're not aware of what's going on. Uh, and I'll give an example, if I may, that we did have a group, a team with us that had uh, over $4 million in GDC top line revenue. And when we, we did a real analysis, um, in the end, we realized we were losing money on that group. And the quantifiable numbers, we were not, but they were using up so much time of our IT staff that it was probably taking up a half of an FTE um, person in IT to service that team. If you look at it that way and you take a fully loaded cost for an IT staff and allocate that to one team as a direct expense, I mean, that's something you really need to do to have insight into that because it's, it's opportunity costs. You know, what could you be doing with that person's time otherwise and, and whatnot? So, and, uh, you know, it's also analyzing what are your most profitable streams of business. There might be something that's minimally profitable, but if you took the people that were working on that and allocated them to somewhere that was, uh, you know, more effective and efficient, that that's a better way of running the company. And, and I'll tell you, I mean, we did not have this information at first. It took us a long time. Um, as I said at the, earlier on, in the beginning, um, you know, there was a department of one, which became a department of two, you know, you, you gradually add people and then you 
gradually add the ability to um, do better, um, have better analytics into those things. So, uh, you know, it took us a while, but I think that now um, we're in a much better position to, to analyze those things and, and to really just, um, I think the most important thing we've learned is to, to try and stay focused. Uh, when you're, the, the things that you do now versus a startup, when you're really willing to take on a lot of things, now you have to kind of pare that back and decide um, what is our focus, what, is our, what are our core strategic initiatives, and just get a lot more strategic about that because it all comes back to that opportunity cost. And, and you can have something that is minimally profitable, but should we be doing that? And, and we're doing a, a much better job of, of being strategic in that respect. And, and I will say that um, a lot of OSJs who are similar to us, they really struggle with this. They struggle with the profitability despite the fact that they might have a big headline-grabbing AUM or GDC number. And um, being that we're involved in acquisitions now, I've uh, been on a few due diligence trips where I've, I've been able to see inside those firms and see that um, it's, it's tough. It's really tough. There's a fine balance between um, trying to give a relatively high payout and still maintaining the margins such that you can reinvest in both, uh, you know, straight up capital and human capital and to do it right. And, you know, what we've seen in doing that is that these, these firms that we don't pay the highest, Jeff says that to everyone, we have a relatively very high payout, given the back office support and value add that, that we believe that we give so that each practice can be run at its peak efficiency and effectiveness. And that's what we try and help them with. But, you know, you can go to another OSJ that's going to give you a higher payout. And, and, but if you, if you think about that, logic would tell you that if you're getting that higher payout, there's not enough profitability to reinvest in the company and maybe, uh, you know, stay ahead of the curve with the technology platforms and the compliance and, you know, the, the, and all of that. And so it's, 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 as I said, it's just crucially important to not just focus on that top line, but to make sure, and, and I will say that the, um, the margin that I look at the most is the EBITDA to net revenue number because, you know, just looking at, at EBITDA to your GDC or whatnot, that doesn't tell you what you're doing with the funds you keep. So I try and look at what are, what's our net revenue after payout and what's our EBITDA margin relative to that. And that's something that we're really proud of because we're, we're well above industry norm for that. And it's tough. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough thing. And we've had to change as an organization to get there. Um, you know, when we, I guess, first, you're just worried about making money. You know, Jeff and I, as I said, we're friends, but it stressed our friendship. I say tongue in cheek because he didn't want to see me in the beginning. Um, it was because it was always bad news. It was always, you know, we're not making money yet. And we kind of need, I, I need more money to keep the doors open. <laughs> and, uh, so I think he started hiding from me. And um, then we got to the point where we're making money and we're going along and we're doing pretty well. And then, um, you know, a few years ago, we, we kind of hit a, a, a stall pattern, so to speak, where on the profitability side, we were uh, still growing with leaps and bounds on the top line, but our profitability was staying relatively flat. And he, you know, wasn't hiding from me anymore as much as saying, what's going on? <laughs> why, am, why am I flying all over the country like a madman? And it's, you know, not creating anything in the bottom line. And so we really had to take a, a, a big step back and see where we were as a company because there were a few things going on. And, you know, first of all, when you're kind of a loose organization and you start out and you don't have as many people, 
um, we didn't have as many guidelines and, and structure around the expenses. And there's something actually Mark Tiburgeon, uh, to quote him, uh, talks about creep. And when you start getting bigger, all of these little expenses add up to big expenses. And when you don't, when you try and keep it kind of loose and without all those guidelines, all of a sudden you realize that, you know, when you had a staff of 10 and now you have a staff of 60 and you're supporting almost a thousand people, those expenses might not seem a lot to each individual person, but in aggregate, they really are. And that impacts when you have a small margin to begin with, that can erode that bottom line. So, you know, we, we did a lot of communication with people saying, you know, we're not trying to be big brother, but we do need to put some guidelines around this. And, and I think that that was the first step. And the other thing is that we were reinvesting in the company and we were having to make some, you know, um, really important uh, hires to, to be um, in advance of when that growth was coming. So for those years, we were, we were kind of flat and it was disturbing, but just in the last couple of years, now we're seeing um, we've had really big jumps in our profitability um, the last couple of years, and we're seeing the fruits of that labor of, of really clamping down on things and focusing more on the analytics around uh, what streams of business we should be doing, um, as well as the scale that we've achieved and, and, and we hired in advance of that. So um, we're really benefiting from that now, and that allows us to reinvest having that profitability allows us to reinvest in the business, which will take us to the next level and, and, and keep us um, keep us relevant. Uh, the other thing that, that I would say along those lines is that concept applies to acquisitions as well. Um, I know you're going to, we're going to talk a little bit um, with Lou about that. And, and um, actually I think it's probably even in just as important, if not more with acquisitions, anybody can write a check uh, and acquire a firm. That's the easy part. Uh, making sure that you acquire the right firm that in the long run, I mean, uh, your culture and fit is clearly your most important um, aspect of the acquisition. But once you realize that, uh, that that's there, looking at the financials and making sure that, that in the long run, it's going to be a uh, contributor, net contributor to the bottom line is, is super important because acquiring debt or using your own capital to take on a firm that's not going to add in the long run is going to make you that splashy headline but, you know, we've seen companies do that where they've, they've bought something and then they've realized, uh-oh, uh, we're kind of getting into a hornet's nest here that we didn't realize we were getting into. And then that can detract from your core as well. So, um, like I said, sorry, I could go on all day yeah. about this, but uh, I, I think that that's, that's crucial. Yep. There's a, a book called The Messy Middle. We've written about it on our on our blog, um, just talking about the messy middle of the entrepreneurial journey. And while you were talking, I, there's one of my favorite quotes from the book. I have it <laughs> saved in my, my email draft, so I pulled it up while you were talking. But one of the quotes is, it usually takes at least two years before you have any reasonable traction to show that your business might be working. <laughs> uh, then another few years of driving yeah, growth. Yeah, I love that. Yep. Well, then it goes, so then he says, then another few years of driving growth to create something that appears to be a moat. Then you can afford to breathe, but only a little. <laughs> um, so yes, it's, it's, uh, it's a constant, awesome. like you said, a hamster wheel, just always... Um, um, it's a it's a nice circle of the, the profit versus growth um, conundrum. I love it. So yes, you brought up M and A. So that is another concept that we have talked about a lot in our articles and white papers and in in a lot of the podcast interviews. Um, the idea that 
in order for an RIA to be successful in the M&A game, a buyer must be able to highlight the firm's infrastructure. Um, they need to convince a seller that should they join the larger firm, the buyer has technology, uh, workflows, compliance, HR, all of this is in place so that the selling advisor won't have to worry about any of that. They're going to be able to grow much faster as part of the larger organization than if they were to, to keep going at it alone. And we've made the argument many times that there's no one better at the selling or at the uh, at the buyer organization than the COO to make this presentation to the to the seller. So, Lou, I know this is a big part of your core responsibilities. Um, can you speak a little bit to uh, to how you handle this? Yeah, yeah, and I think it's a great question, and it aligns well with kind of Nancy's previous comments. So, you know, look at at the end of the day, right when if you've got five potential buyers, which is not unusual in, in today's environment, um, everyone can write the check, right? So you start looking to that cultural fit and write the, the softer side of things of you know doing business with someone you like, all other things being equal. But um, to Nancy's point earlier, right, Stratus is never going to be the low cost provider and that's not what we're trying to be. So we are often challenged to highlight the infrastructure and the, the value that we pr- provide above and beyond beyond, right? Just the basics or the purchase price of the transaction. So we spend a lot of time, you know, highlighting the fact that we have real infrastructure, which is uh, different than our competitors and other large OSJs and, you know, firms that are looking to be acquired. We challenge them, right? They've, they've got to really think about what they're really getting, right? When they partner with a firm like Stratos, we have over 60 plus home office employees, right? We have true infrastructure and support around real estate. We've got, you know, 24 hour tech support. We help with marketing, practice management, compliance, Um, firms that affiliate with us or partner with us um, from an M&A perspective, right? We want to help on that front as well. While our partners can continue, right, to own the fit and feel of a transaction, um, leveraging the team, leveraging Nancy, Jeff, and others within the firm, we can help with the financing aspect of things, deal structure, and all the complexity uh, that comes with handling a transaction. So we spend a lot of time really emphasizing the fact there's that there's true infrastructure. And when you peel back the layers on a lot of our competitors and firms out there, that's missing, right? They they live and breathe by the highest payout. And you know, certainly that that can attract some folks to your platform, but it's really hard to run a business and it's really hard to reinvest when your payouts are so high that there's not a lot left to build out an infrastructure. And so we pride ourselves on the financial discipline that it takes to have real infrastructure when you peel back the layers. So we focus uh, we focus a lot of our time stressing that. Uh, anyone that affiliates with Stratos or uh, uh, we partner with through acquisition, they, we, we invite them out to Beachwood so they can come out and see it. And we think that's where we really, really shine. It's very rare that we'll have a firm come out to visit our headquarters, meet the people and see what's behind the scenes. Um, rarely do they walk away and not ultimately decide to affiliate with us in some capacity. And we're, we're incredibly proud of that. That's great. <clears throat> so, um, Jeff, I wanted to throw the final question to you. It's a little bit left field for a uh, COO uh, podcast, but uh, I didn't want to lose the opportunity to ask you this, given your status in the industry, 
and uh, the nature of uh, Stratos's business plan. <clears throat> I'd love to get your opinion on the liquidity events that we've seen recently um, with the three large aggregators in our space. So we obviously we saw Focus uh, Focus Financial went public. Hightower uh, was bought by a larger private equity firm. And then just uh, recently, we had the big uh, announcement that United Capital um, recently sold to Goldman. Um, so I uh, wanted to get your opinion on the monetization opportunities in the wealth management space. Do you think that uh, outside capital um, will continue to flow into our industry? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. And it's also very interesting uh, because the, those few transactions that you mentioned and then a number of others that I'm aware of through various circles that I sit in have been pretty mind-blowing. Uh, I think they've sort of redefined uh, what, you know, a, a peaked market and massive flows of capital from the various you know, institutional buyers and PE firms, what that can mean in the way of multiples. What's interesting is to the to the bulk of our industry, I don't think it means much. Multiples really haven't changed for the bread and butter, you know, half million, million, probably even $2 million dollar uh, revenue practice, but for those with size and scale and far smaller than the ones that you referenced, a lot of those firms are seeing massive, massive multiple expansion, and I'm frankly blown away by what I've seen. And I think those, I think these things are cyclical, Matt. I think we're at the absolute tail end. I'd be shocked uh, by the end of the year or beginning of next year if we're in the same environment that we're in. Everybody throws around that term frothy yeah. when prices are high and capital is abundant and the markets have had a you know, decade tailwind just driving up asset values. So in my opinion, uh, I think we're coming to the tail end of just a highly unusual period. Not unusual for the bread and butter world. I think the multiples of EBITDA in that four and a half to five and a half times range have been reasonably consistent. I think there are things that will change those as well. Uh, but when you take a look at larger firms, not the size of the ones you reference, but still meaningful, you know, th- two, three, four, five, six, eight, ten billion. There have been even some mind-blowing stuff taking place in that space as well. So it's it's interesting times. Interesting times. Absolutely. Well, I cannot thank all of you uh, enough, uh, Jeff, Nancy, and Lou. Um, you've been very articulate in your answers. Um, gave a lot of details here for people to to chew on. Um, thank you for allowing us to 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 look under the hood of the C-suite at Stratos. Um, we've all uh, benefited from from your knowledge today. Um, I think our next episode we're going back to our standard uh, two COO guests from two different firms. Um, but I've I've really uh, this one's been fun to sort of mix up our our standard guest profile. So thank you again. Um, we've got a few other interesting ideas for for future podcasts um, to get. RIA best practice uh, uh, tips from a variety of different sources. So um, thank you, uh, Jeff, Nancy, and Lou. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. Great. Thank Uh, you so much. Yes, thank you. And we will talk to everybody next time. Thanks.